0: The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. I've been gone for the last two weeks, which is the longest time I've ever been away on Sundays from Story City. Took a little vacation, and then I was up for Snowmageddon at Hume Lake Christian Camps with our youth group. Um, yeah, we, I didn't build any. I'm not a snow fan, and we got two feet of it, so um, I'm more on the snow patrol. Uh, I, anyways... Um, So, if you're new here or we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Tyler, and it's great to see you guys this morning. Um, We are in the book of Ecclesiastes as a church right now, and for those of you that have been on the journey, we know that Solomon is just laying down the smack on us, and uh, that's going good. But today we get to perhaps the most famous passage in Ecclesiastes, one of them for sure, thanks largely in part to the band The Birds in the 1960s. If any of you are music fans, you will know the song, turn, turn, everything. I won't sing, but um, i do enough of that around here. But uh, before we get into our text this morning, I want to kind of tee things up for us and give us some lenses to see things through. Our text this morning is about time and seasons. It's a good morning for that, uh, seeing as most of us lost time last night while we were sleeping, and we remember the changing of the seasons through daylight savings time. Um, But before we get into that, let me say a word of prayer for us. Father, thank you for your good word. Um, thank you that as we're gonna talk about today that you are the God that's with us and present in every season of life, the good and the bad, that you are the faithful God. And Jesus, we need to see you this morning. We need to taste your goodness. So would you be present? Would you help us to know you, to experience you, Jesus? Would you lay your word upon our hearts and make us wise at life because we know you? So be here with us, it's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I wanna put some lenses on this morning because I think it's important that we have the right perspective before we get into our text in Ecclesiastes this morning. So for the first five or 10 minutes, we're gonna flip around a little bit. If you guys wanna try to keep up with me, that's great. If not, I will have it on the screens for you. But we're gonna start in Isaiah verse 44 and we're getting, getting the right lenses to see things through this morning. Or I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 46, verse eight. Isaiah 46, verse eight. Remember this and stand firm. This is God speaking. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. And God's not throwing shade at us there. He's just being honest. That's who we are. We transgress. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time things not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So here's what's happening here. God is saying to his people, listen, you're not like me. I am God and I'm alone. There's no one like me in the universe in all of creation. So you're not like me, you don't think like me, you don't process, you don't see like me. We are utterly different. So we need to understand that about us and God this morning. He's different than us. And then he gives us the way that he's different. And he says... I'm God and there's no other, none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, meaning that I stand outside of time, I rule over time, time is my creation, I'm not bound by time, I'm not affected by time, I'm not blinded by time, I see all things at once, the future and the past aren't things I see, they're places I am, Time is under my feet. And then he says, and from ancient times, things not yet done, meaning I can stand in the past and I can look forward into the future and I can say exactly what's going to happen and it will happen the way I said it's going to happen. God's got game. He's got skills, okay? So right now, get this. God is not a fearful God. He's never been afraid. He's not like us right now. For those of you that have been following the news or the times, you know that President Donald Trump has a meeting coming up with President Kim Jong-un of North Korea, And we're all praying over this and hoping for good and the denuclearization of North Korea. God knows exactly how that meeting's going to go right now. We wonder, God knows every word that's gonna be said. He knows the intonation that it's gonna be said with. He knows the secret stuff that's going on behind each of their backs. He's absolutely in control of that situation. So as we fear, as we wonder, God knows. For those of us that live in LA and are like me and are scared of earthquakes, and you keep reading these articles that say the big one is overdue and it's coming, I need to stop reading those. God knows. He knows exactly on the Richter scale what it's going to be. He knows who it's going to hit and who it's not. He knows where it's going to hit and when. He's in control of all creation. This text literally says that he calls the birds of prey and sends them on their way. Meaning this, if you see, you guys know those Burbank parrots that fly around? You guys ever seen those? There's like the random parrots. God, I love Burbank, by the way. God knows Every path that that bird is gonna take before it takes it, he's in control, he's guiding the parrots, he's in control. He knows the number of mosquitoes at barbecue and he knows the temperature of the stars. Okay, he is over everything in all creation. All history is in his hand, all time is in hand. His feet are kicked up and he's ruling and reigning. This is God. He's sovereign over all creation and history. That's what we see in Isaiah 46. Let's turn to Philippi, uh, sorry, Psalm 139. Verses one through six. And we'll go a little farther down. And in this, David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and when I lie down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't attain it. In verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately Woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there were none of them. So here's what we see here. In Isaiah 46, we see that God is massive in his sovereignty, that he's over all creation and history. Here we see that God is intimate and personal in his sovereignty. So here's what this means. This means that the fact that Tyler Miller is a six foot three pale redhead with a high propensity to sunburns and the fact that I'm a melancholy temperament and, is, and I'm what my, my wife calls emotionally sensitive or complicated, whatever that means. That means that God made me this way. Like when he was, he was weaving, he was active. He had a spindle out and he said, this is the Tyler Miller I want on planet Earth And he wove me together and said, this is who he's gonna be, and he likes it. He didn't make an accident, he didn't mess it up. Our temperaments, the way we think, our bodies, the way we look, God did that. And at some point, this is just for, for a bonus, but every single person in this room at some point needs to set themselves free from striving to be someone they're not. At some point, you gotta lay that down and say, this is who God made me. And he loves it. And we learn to love what God has made. So God is not only sovereign over all creation and all history, he's sovereign over our bodies and minds. Last one, Acts 17, verses 24 through 27. And Paul is speaking here to a bunch of skeptics that are searching for God and worshiping false gods. And he says this in Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I love Paul here. He's like, he gives him life, he gives him breath. And in case you're gonna say there's anything he didn't give, everything. He gives them life and breath and everything else. And he goes on. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. That's Adam. We all came from Adam. And then he says this, having determined allotted periods, and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. So Paul says this, God determined the allotted period of our lives. That means this, the number of days that you're given to breathe oxygen on this green planet we live on, God just decided that. He knows it, he's familiar. He saw your first and your last before it ever happened. It also means this, the decade we live in, the generation we live in, the fact that we aren't cowboys in the old west right now, spitting into platoons. Is that what they're called? Yeah, spittoons, thank you. The fact that we are here and not there, God did that. He could have had us born anytime. He chose, so my wife and I, if you ask us why we live in Burbank and why we decided to move here in 2015, we could give you a lot of reasons. We could say, well, you know, we wanted to be a little closer to family. We felt called to church planning. All these things were going on in our hearts. Here's the real answer behind the answer. Before time was created, God decided and ordained that we would live in Burbank, California in 2018, be doing ministry at Story City Church with you lovely people. God determined that you, you live where you live and you live when you live because God Almighty decided that. He's sovereign over when and where we live. The picture is being painted right now that time is in God's hands, that he's sovereign over our lives and our days and the seasons that we live through. So with those lenses on from scripture, let's look at our text and we'll do our best not to hear the birds singing in the background. You guys know that song? Yeah, yeah? okay. I'm just, everyone's kind of looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter three. The preacher writes, for everything there is a season. If you underline words in your Bible, everything and season are pretty big ones A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. Time for war and a time for peace. This is the word of God. So the preacher writes us here in Ecclesiastes and here's what he's saying. I've lived life, I've traveled ahead, I've seen the road. These are the mountains that you're going to have to summit in life. And these are the valleys and pastures of green rest where the Lord will help you to lay down and give you delight. And you're going to have to face every single one of them. We need to note that he is being descriptive and not prescriptive when he lists these seasons. This is what that means. He's not giving moral values or judgments and saying, it's good to have a time to hate. It's really great. Go try to kill someone. That's not what's happening here. He's saying, look, I've lived life, this is just what is. If you're going to live life on planet earth, these are the seasons you're going to experience. And this is the way the world works in the fallen, sin-infested world that we are in. He's being descriptive about life. Secondly, we need to know this, and this gets back to the issue of God's sovereignty in our seasons. He's gonna tell us, and he's saying that these aren't just things that happen to us randomly He's saying that these are seasons and things that God sends, sends into our life. So I really, I really wish that I could treat this list like a buffet. Like a, I'll walk up to it and go, okay, Solomon, here's what I got. Um, I will have an order of um, a time to laugh with a time to dance and a side of a time to gather stones, please. That's all I'd like. That's not what's happening here. This is more like a wedding meal where you either eat it or you don't. You're gonna to have to have the lima beans and the cabbage in there with it, okay? So this is not something we get to pick and choose. He's just saying, God is going to send these seasons and you would be wise to adjust your expectations and your life to them. And he gives us, he gives us two categories for seasons. I'm gonna call them disquieting seasons and delightful seasons. Disquieting seasons and delightful seasons. The preacher is going to force us to have a balanced, nuanced view of life. Here's what that means: for to reference the great cartoon Winnie the Pooh, Um, for the tiggers in the room, who are always bouncing and happy and exhausting me. Um, For those of you that are prone to see the world only in pastels and fluorescent colors. The preacher is going to describe disquieting seasons that are real and unavoidable, seasons that steal our joy, that bring grief into our lot in our days. And he's gonna say, these are there. And he's gonna force you to have a balanced view. Let's read those. We we'll got them on the screen. Disquieting seasons, a time to die, a time to pluck up, a time to kill, a time to break down, a time to weep, a time to mourn, a time to cast away, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to lose, A time to tear, a time to be silent, a time to hate, a time for war. But for the Eeyores in the room, I fall more into this category, naturally. For the Eeyores in the room who are always walking around, head down. Oh, Pooh Bear. My life is so hard. Things are going to go bad for me. I'm in, I'm in this camp, so I'm mostly making fun of myself here. But for those of you that are, and us that are prone to see the world mostly in blacks and grays, to expect doom, the preacher is going to tell us that there are many delightful seasons in life under the sun. Many delightful seasons. Things that inspire and nurture hope in our lives and root our hope in God again. Here's what the preacher's saying by showing us both of these seasons. Let's actually, let's read the delightful seasons. A time to be born, a time to plant, a time to heal, a time to build up, a time to laugh, a time to dance, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to seek, a time to keep, a time to sow, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time for peace. Here's what the preacher's saying to us. He's saying, as you travel out there in the world under this sun, Remember this about your times. There are beginnings and endings, goods and evils, things we choose and choices we didn't make but must deal with. We age. We face realities with relationships and necessities with work. These occasions await us all, and God sends and orders them. So don't stick your, hand in this, in the sand, don't stick your head in the sand about life. With light of these realities disquieting and delightful seasons, here's our question. How can we learn to live wisely and live contented lives in every season, be it suffering or the greatest joy this world has to offer? We need to learn to acknowledge, surrender to, and rejoice in God's sovereignty over the days of our lives and the seasons he sends. We need to learn to acknowledge, surrender to, and rejoice in God's sovereignty. So you're asking How do I learn to do this, Tyler? Help me. I am very glad you asked because that question is going to frame my three main points this morning. We learn to acknowledge God's sovereignty, first off, by being attentive to the seasons he sends. We learn to acknowledge God's sovereignty by being attentive to the season he sends. So a question for us, by show of hands, how many people in this room would describe themselves as busy? Like I'm a busy person. Life keeps me busy. Almost everyone. You guys are more busy than the first service was. They I mean, were only about 50%. I think this room more represents the true nature of life in this city in 2018. We are busy, busy people. Work, raising kids, school, paying bills, doctor's appointments, serving at church, travel, getting sick, tending to marriage, dating, or just trying desperately to find someone who'll go on a date with us, friendships, eating, playing. By the time we finally get a moment of rest at the end of the day. The very last thing we want to do is sit and think deeply and analyze the pace and expectations and the way we're living our life. All we wanna do is turn on the TV, pop some popcorn, or put a frozen burrito in and zone out and veg, right? Am I right? This is the way we live at our lives. We are exhausted. So, so the problem with this, people who are busy tend to live with little attentiveness to their changing surroundings and circumstances and how they are affecting them emotionally, spiritually, and physically. I wanna read that again. People who are busy tend to live with little attentiveness to their ever-changing surroundings and circumstances and how they are affecting them emotionally, spiritually, and physically. So I have a habit, it's not really a habit. I like to run from time to time, jog. About 10 years ago, I jogged a lot. Now I'm like lucky if I get out once a month. But I like to run alone. I really prefer running alone, and here's why: because whenever I run with somebody else, they always seem to take great joy in setting a pace that is just like three or four steps faster than I am comfortable running at. So I'm like, they're here, they're the podium, and I'm like right here, just trying to keep up. And uh, and they seem to be unaffected by the pace. Um, they're very comfortable and I'm spending all of my energy just to keep up. And then it, every time we get to the end of the jog and it's, we sit down in a park or we sit down on a bench and they look at me and say, isn't it a beautiful day? And I think to myself, I hadn't noticed. I was too busy killing myself, trying to keep up with your excruciating pace. I was in such exasperating pain that I had forgotten to notice that the sky was blue much less that it's a beautiful day for a jog. So often I and we feel like life is that running partner, amen? Like life is always setting that pace that is two or three steps away from comfortable, that we are spending all our energy just to keep up with it. And the problem with living and running and traveling at this frenetic, excruciating pace is that when you run at it for long enough, you fail to notice that your surroundings are changing, Your body's changing, you're traveling, life is happening and changing, and you need to slow down and assess the new demands of your current season and your aging body and adjust accordingly. So, for example, I lived a certain way when I was a single person in my 20s. Um, I What what was I like in my, this feels like a lifetime ago. Um, When I was single, I had a certain budget. It was very minimal, very low. If it was 1 a.m. in the morning and I had a hankerin' for two double-doubles and a two-liter of Mountain Dew, I went and got them whenever I wanted. I could fit most of my possessions, if not all of them, half of which was, which was music gear, into the back of my Volkswagen Passat with 20-inch rims. Rest in peace. <laughs> Bought it on eBay, terrible decision. Um, life was a certain way. And then I met Brooke Young, a beautiful brunette at a party on New Year's Eve. And I fell in love with her. And I decided to get married to her. And if I had not paused in that moment and said to myself, you know what, Tyler, your life's gonna change. You're getting married. You probably need to stop and and pay attention to the change that's coming in your life. You're gonna need a budget now. You're gonna need an income that can sustain two people. You're gonna need to stop going to bed with Cheeto fingers. You're going to need to stop sleeping on a futon. You're gonna need to rent an apartment and stop couch surfing. If I hadn't stopped and noticed all these things, marriage would not have gone well for me. And by the way, in some ways I didn't, and in some ways things didn't go well. Try being married and living like you did with your single. You'll have a very displeased spouse. Marriage will require you to be attentive to the change in seasons. And so it is with entering into new seasons, like having a kid, a second, a third, a fourth, God help you. A new job, losing your job, getting a promotion, entering or graduating from high school, college, your kids becoming teens or leaving the house, grieving lost or unrequited love or finding it again. A move to a new city, aging physically, getting sick, your parents aging and needing care, the death of a loved one, even changes on a global or national scale like we're all seeing right now. All of these events and countless others signify new seasons, God is sovereignly leading us into. So often we walk through a change in the seasons of our lives and we fail to adjust our pace and even notice the change. We're too busy. And in the end, we hurt ourselves and those closest to us in the process. Many of us this morning, this is just maybe the main thing God has for you. You need to slow down and you need to pay attention to what's going on in your life and adjust your expectations and adjust the way you're living Secondly, we learn to surrender to God's sovereignty by receiving rather than resisting the seasons he sends. We learn to surrender to God's sovereignty by receiving rather than resisting the seasons he sends. Solomon's use of the word season here kind of evokes imagery of a farmer and his plot of land enduring the changing landscape. And he's saying this, a a smart farmer, a farmer that stays a farmer through more than one, one winter, He's learned to watch the seasons change around him and surrender to them, to adjust the way he plants and what he plants where and when to the seasons that roll through his plot of land. There are times of year that weather and soil conditions are favorable for crops to bear fruit. And there are times of year where no amount of effort or labor the farmer pours into his land could make it produce fruit. An unwillingness to receive and surrender to the seasons that come his way will harm the farmer and those he provides for, and so it is with us in our lives and the seeds we seek to plant. Hear me say this. Receiving the seasons the Lord sends means we allow them to shape our lives rather than trying to control and shape them to our liking. Let me say that again. Receiving the seasons the Lord sends means we allow them to shape our lives rather than trying to control and shape them our liking and live life as we would have it. By receiving the seasons, we learn to humbly receive life and the world as it actually is. And we cease to attempt with hubris to contort it to what we wish it was, which always leads to anxiety, anger, fear, regret. When we resist the seasons, we are like a farmer planting seeds in frozen soil, refusing to acknowledge and surrender to them. And the lot of our lives cannot and will not flourish without surrender to the seasons that roll through. So, What does this look like? I want to try to put some flesh on it. And these are limited examples. There's thousands. But some of us in this room right now are resisting a season that requires you to embrace adulthood and begin doing what Solomon would call gathering stones. God is calling you to leave behind the season of adolescence where you haphazardly scattered the stones that your parents, your loved ones, your friends gathered for you, where you waited on everybody to provide for you. He's he's looking for you to stop living in the moment like a child and start looking forward and planning for the future, investing in what's to come rather than the moment, living out of self-sacrifice and self-care so that you can find the rewards that come from these things. But you prefer or we prefer the kiddie pool where it's safe and comfortable and easy and everything's done for us. And as a result, we fail to grow. Some of us on the other side have become old of heart more so than old of age. And we've failed to receive a season where God is calling us to cast away stones that we've gathered. God's calling us to radical generosity, to childlike faith, to pouring out what's been given to us. But we've become stingy and stoic, driven by the bottom line and fear God's calling you to cast away what you've so successfully gathered, but you're scared and you keep gathering or keep your arms wrapped around what he's given you. Another example, some of us are in dating relationships in this room. Solomon would tell us there's a wise time to refrain from embracing. Dating is a season for this, but you resist. God wants to teach you the reward of patience and purity. He wants to keep your wedding night stored up in intimacy that's undefiled by giving away what he's saving for you in a future season. But you prefer the promiscuous pleasures of the here and now. And you hurt yourself in the process and the one you care for. And you invite chaos and court chaos into your life in the meantime as you reject God's good purpose for sex and embrace it in a season that he hasn't given it to you in joy. There's grace for this, but we need to hear these things. Others of us in this room are in marriages and you are smack dab in the middle of a season meant for embracing, but you stay distant. An invisible wall of resentment and fear and regret stands between you and your spouse and you forfeit the only season God has given you for embracing. This is hard stuff. Acknowledging and surrendering and remembering the seasons God's given to us and the fleeting nature of them is the first step towards healing. Those things can be restored by the good God, but it requires surrender to the seasons we're in and an acknowledgement of them. Some Some of us in this room are resisting a season meant for silence. We need to recognize that God has led our relationships to a place that only time and prayer can heal. We need to stop using words to control others and trust God's sovereignty over their hearts and our own hearts as we hurt. We need to see that there is a wound in the relationship that requires wise caution. We need to see that there's a healthy boundary that's necessary for a season of healing. Others of us on the other side are so afraid of confrontation and emotion and speaking the truth in love that we resist a season meant for speaking or ever addressing the relational strain and secrets that we've kept hidden or someone else has for far too long. You may ask, How do I know? How do I know which season it is in this case? Well, that's the first step towards acknowledging this is something that's going to require prayer and a dependence not on a rule, but on God Almighty Himself to lead us by His Spirit for restoration. There's no formula here. This is something the Spirit leads. Another one, some of us are so fixated on our careers and dreams of comfort and success and fame that we're resisting a season that God is asking us to lose, as Solomon would call it, rather than to seek. We're unwilling to lay down a dream of comfort or success so we forfeit precious evenings and hours at home with our kids. We forfeit intimacy and love and trust with our spouse. God's ready to reveal to us greater rewards and fulfillments than success or fame, but we're unwilling to surrender to the seasons. We're unwilling to spend a season of losing in one area that we might gain in another that's more valuable and that God has intended. Lastly, every parent of a young child, and these all prick me, but this one really pricks me. Every parent of a young child knows the need to daily surrender to a season of planting seeds. When we resist a season of sacrifice, full of tedious work of planting wisdom, love, care, God's word into our little ones day by day, and rather choose to live like we're in a season where we can center things around ourselves. We find ourselves angry and exasperated. And here's why, because we're trying to pluck up things from our kids that haven't been planted yet. Our kids need time to fail. They need time to learn and grow and be shown and taken by the hand and said, This is the way you go. But we don't like being inconvenienced by having to do that. I don't like being inconvenienced by having to do that. So I lash out in anger rather than patiently taking my daughter by the hand and saying, Let me show you a better way. This is tedious and it's hard work and it's a season for planting. But we try to pluck. We need to leave those seeds in the ground and be patient with our kids. Now, here's the thing we are all. Bible says we all stumble in many ways. Like perhaps one of these really plucked you or pricked your heart. You need to hear this from me. The Lord is able to restore lost time. He is through Jesus. He is able to restore. If you've been walking one of these seasons and ignoring the seasons, all you have to do is look to Jesus and he is able to restore through his grace. He's able to make us wise. He's able to show us how. And one little note on the end of... This section, receiving the seasons does not mean that we don't long for hard times to be over. Surrendering to the seasons of our life does not mean that we don't long for better days. It is normal, good and right and honest to long and cry out in times of disquiet. David himself modeled it. it's in Holy Scripture, Psalm 13:1: how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself from me forever? So receiving the seasons does not mean we feign invincibility. No, it doesn't hurt me. And receiving the seasons, it doesn't mean we stop crying out to God to deliver us. It doesn't mean that we don't long deep in our souls for better days. Here's what it does mean though. It means that we recognize that every season, no matter how good or how hard is sent from God. And only he by his mighty hand and sovereign power can usher us into new seasons. We can't do it by managing our own lives. So what do we do? We direct our longing, our angst, our cries and pleas towards God. We make our complaint known to him in honesty and await deliverance from him with the best faith we can muster rather than trying to deliver ourselves and pretend the season is something it's not. When we do this, when we exercise the spiritual maturity of pouring out our hearts to God in longing and vulnerability, even disquieting seasons, start to push us towards Christ for comfort and deliverance rather than distancing from him as we seek to deliver ourselves in self-reliance. Receiving the seasons and surrendering to them is about acknowledging that the Lord alone has power over our seasons. And what is at stake here when we, when we, when we resist rather than when we receive the seasons? When we resist the seasons God sovereignly sends, we shield ourselves from learning. We shield ourselves from growing. We shield ourselves from becoming the wise people that God is making us through these seasons. Our view of God is made hazy and foggy. But when we receive them in humble submission, we grow through them. We're strengthened through them. We begin to see God's goodness and nearness and experience his consolations, even in our sorrows and our faith is built. And we become wise people, get this with powerful transformative testimonies for future sufferers. You wanna have a testimony to be able to speak life into someone that's suffering? Steward your own suffering well, because God will use that. He will not waste time. He doesn't waste time, yours or his own. We all struggle here, I do. There's amazing, unbelievable, uncontainable grace available to all of us in Jesus. Even as we refuse to surrender to his sovereignty over our seasons, he's working. But those who learn to receive the seasons God sends will learn wisdom, contentedness, joy, and have a testimony that those who resist will never have. Lastly, we learn to rejoice In God's sovereignty by trusting his goodness through the seasons he sends. We learn to rejoice in God's sovereignty by trusting his goodness through the seasons he sends. Now, this gets us into the PhD level stuff of Christianity. (laughs) It's one thing to acknowledge a season that God sends and his sovereignty, it's another thing to surrender to it, but it is another thing entirely to begin to rejoice in whatever season God sends when we feel out of control and helpless can only be done by the Spirit. There is not one person in this room who's built and wired with a disposition and temperament to rejoice when life gets dark. That doesn't exist. That's not the way we're wired. We rejoice naturally when things are good and the light is shining upon us. So this is PhD level stuff. And yet, the biblical imperative remains from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.4. You've heard this verse. Rejoice in the Lord, What? Always, I will say it again, rejoice. I really, really wish this verse was different. I really wish that I would open my Bible up tomorrow and try to read this verse and it would say, rejoice in the Lord after a good meal. Rejoice in the Lord every day At 2 p.m., rejoice in the Lord when all is at peace and harmony in your life. Rejoice in the Lord when the bank account is full. Rejoice in the Lord when you find the house you want. Rejoice in the Lord when you're healthy. It's not what it says. It says rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again in case you're looking for an out. Rejoice. So how do we do this? How do we become people who are able to rejoice? How are we able to pull off this impossible feat that Paul is calling us to? Well, first we need to understand something. Christian rejoicing is not the absence of sorrow. Let me say that again. Christian rejoicing is not the absence of sorrow. It's not the absence of frustration. It's not the absence of lament. Christian rejoicing shines brightest in sorrow. Christian rejoicing and joy are fused with longing and lament for the Christian. Jesus himself modeled this for us. Isaiah 53.3 calls him the man of sorrows, the one we worship, the one we adore was called a man of sorrows. But John 15.11, he also says that he came as the source of joy to give joy to his people. How does that work? How does a man of sorrows give joy to people? See, sorrow and joy live in mysterious tension for the believer. By faith, when suffering and hardships and season of disquiet come, and we find that God is near to us. We see this. Second Corinthians four, eight and nine says this. It gets at this idea. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. So crying out to God and fear and pain are not sins for the Christian their faith, they are the visceral childlike prayers that God loves. When we cry out to him in our pain, we invite the God who according to Psalm thirty-four eighteen, is near to the brokenhearted to draw near by his spirit who is called our comforter, our counselor. And when this happens, when the spirit draws near in our suffering, as we bring our grief to God with joy that he's able to handle it, A supernatural consolation, he draws near. He begins to lift us in our weakness and make us able to say with faith like Job when he suffered. And we know Job endured more than any of us are likely to endure. The loss of family, the loss of everything he owned, boils breaking out all over his body, rubbing himself with a broken pot. If you've done that in this room, find me after church. And Job says this in his suffering, I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. This is the nature of rejoicing and suffering for the Christian. Job says by faith, life hurts, couldn't be worse, but I know my redeemer lives. And even if I die, I'll live with him again on this earth. This is what brings that tension. We have future hope and present struggles. But to rejoice, we have to learn to look to God. So we're almost done. And here's the last thing I want to say. We're always, we are, everyone in this room is going to die with questions. I'm going to die with questions, things I don't understand about why God allowed things to happen to me. Why did that go that way? Why did that go that way? How long, O Lord, will you let this happen? Every single person in this room will always have questions and we can bring those questions to God. And when we do, and we say, God, why would you allow this? How could it possibly be good? How could I possibly rejoice in this? How could it be good? Biblically, God looks down at us and he says, with a gentle voice, you're just too close to the pain to understand. You're zoomed in all you can see is the jagged edges of the glass that cut and bruise. Zoom out to my sovereign, all-knowing, mighty, eternal plan and purposes. And you see a big wall of stained glass. Right now, all you can see is the backside of the tapestry I'm weaving with strings and frayed and things hanging all over the place, it looks awful. Zoom out to my mighty, all-knowing, sovereign perspective and you will see a beautiful tapestry is being woven that I will redeem. But that can only be believed by faith. God would say to us, you're never going to know it all. You're never going to know it all this side of eternity because mystery is a prerequisite to faith. Mystery is a prerequisite to faith. If you know it all, you don't have to have faith. And guess what? God loves faith. Nothing pleases him more than faith. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone that would believe that God exists, anyone that would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith is the way to please God and if he removes mystery, it's gone. But he, it's not the only answer he gives us. He also says this, Romans eight thirty two. How would he who gave his own son for us who did not spare his own son, not also freely give us all things. God says, you wanna know I'm good? You wanna have something to put your stake in in your pain and seasons of disquiet? Look to my son, I gave you my most precious prize. The one I've loved from before eternity began. I gave him for you. He entered into the seasons. He was timeless above it all. And I chose to put him in time for you, to save you, to love you. If I'm willing to do this, how could I possibly be doing all these other things to hurt you? It doesn't make sense. We have to look to God. See, Jesus stepped into it for us to save us from our sin. Jesus knew seasons, Jesus knew pain. He understands us. I wanna close by reading a couple things for you and then we'll be done. This is by a pastor named Zach Eswine. He's in St. Louis. And he says this about this passage. Jesus was born and this into a time for war. Rome was occupied and ruled, by, and ruled his people and land. Zealots plotted and rebels skirmished. Jesus and his family fled as refugees into the night in Egypt. What they had gathered had to be cast away. A time came when they could return and build again. There were times when Jesus was silent and those who should have stood up in his defense said nothing. Nothing. He was building a kingdom which some sought to tear down. He was seeking to tear down kingdoms that demons and delusions sought to build. There was a time when his disciples heard him speak and felt his embrace. The garden came though, betrayal arose, silence and the distance of a cold night and closed doors. Jesus saw people losing, seeking toy treasures and turning away like that rich young ruler who came to him. And Jesus loved him. But the man turned away from Jesus and walked away sad. Jesus saw people weeping. There was a time to mourn in their diseases, in their pains, in their aging, in their ordinary life stages. Jesus too wept. But Jesus also knew what it was to dance at a celebration, a Jewish celebration, when the whole community would have held hands and they would have danced together in worship, together welcoming the lost son home. When disease shrank back at his words and legs, mind, skin, and eyes were freed again to do what they were built to do. Do you think Jesus stood there stoically when someone was healed right before his eyes? If their legs could move again, they would have danced together. Right then and there, they would have danced. He too would have laughed with joy. And I'm sure Jesus had to tear down tables. He was a carpenter after all, a wood pile, a scrap pile. He knew how to build with wood. He knew what it was to see killing. He knew what it was to plant and pluck up. And Jesus knows what it means to die. Jesus experienced our seasons and times. Hear this, his sympathy with us abounds. We long for empathy. And so often it's in short supply. The whole picture given in the Bible is that God has entered life under the sun and in Jesus taken it all. So when you're sitting sad on your chair in your living room, The message for you is that Jesus knew the times. He too cried as you cry. He too has been abandoned the way some of you have been abandoned. He too has overcome the way many of you have overcome. He too has sung poetry in the brokenness of betrayal like some of you. He too has died as we all will. But in him, the sting of death has died. Jesus understands. He gets you. He's felt what you feel. He's with you in it. And the one thing we can know for certainty this morning, if we're Christians at all, is that these bad things don't happen to us because God doesn't love us or doesn't care or isn't powerful. God is working through them for our good. And Jesus came and died the death we deserve so that one day, Every disquieting season will be healed and removed. Time brought back to the way it was intended in the garden and only seasons of delight remain for those that have come to Jesus through faith, turned from their sin, embraced his work on the cross, believed that it's finished and loved him. There will be no more disquieting seasons then. So that's where we place our hope and our faith. I wanna end by reading this last quote from John Newton, the author of and writer of Amazing Grace. He knows our sorrows And not merely as he knows all things, but as one who has been in our situation and who though without sin himself, endured when upon the earth inexpressibly more for us than he will ever lay upon us. Do you believe that this morning? Is your faith in this good God who's with you in every season? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word again Thank you for the wisdom of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Thank you for every season you send into our lives, God. We weep through them, we mourn through them, but when we steward them into your care, when we give our tears to you, you redeem them, you make them beautiful, you bring restoration and healing, you bring wisdom and discernment, you bring testimony of your goodness. God, would you help those of us in this room in a disquieting season to suffer and trusting themselves to a God who judges justly. And for those of us in this room in a delightful season where all is going well, praise you. Thank you, God. Thank you for your care. Would you help us to remember you in those times, to give thanks. It's in Jesus' name, amen.